Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you so feel free to leave us a rating or a review. My guest today is AJ Finn, the American author who has just had his debut novel published. It's a psychological thriller called The Woman in the Window, but this is not just any debut novel. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's been published in 43 countries across the world, the most for any debut ever. And the film rights have already been sold, meaning we'll be seeing The Woman in the Window on our cinema screens very soon. AJ Finn, it's a pleasure to welcome you to Ireland and to Inside Books, but first things first. Your author name is AJ Finn, but your real name is Dan Mallory. Yes, guilty. That's true. How did that happen? So I worked in publishing for 10 years before retiring at the end of December so that I could pursue a full-time writing career. And at the time we submitted the novel to uh, to editors, I knew that editors on both sides of the Atlantic, because I'd worked in the British and American markets, would know me. And I didn't wish for anyone to take that into consideration when evaluating the manuscript. I wanted them to assess it on its own merits, such as they were. My agent had identified me as a publishing executive in her pitch letter, although I was unnamed. And given that there are about eight men working in British and American publishing, they would have smoked me out pretty quickly. So I chose AJ, a gender-neutral pseudonym, only so as to keep my sex and identity a secret. By the time the book was acquired, everyone knew. And I get a bit irritated with newspaper journalists when they write about me and say, AJ Finn, real name Dan Mallory. It's it's totally fine for podcasts and more informal conversations, but... You're just being nice to me now. I, no, 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 no. I, <laughs> <laughs> I promise I mean it. But journalists in print seem to think that they've got some sort of scoop. And I want to say it's it's been public knowledge for a year and a half. Also, not that I'm putting myself on his level, but like when they write about John le Carre, they don't say real name David Cornwell. They observe his true. professional name. So, And there are a huge number of authors who do oh, that. Oh, loads of them. And yeah. actors as well. Julianne Moore is going to be in the film version of she my book. Is. And her real name, as I learned, is Julianne Smith. But Oh, I didn't know that. No one comments on that. Yep. And do you answer to the name AJ? I answer to literally anything. <laughs> you can call me Sophie. Yes. <laughs> anything will do. And actually, we will talk later on about your ability to get inside the mind of a female, actually, because that is the protagonist in, in, your, in your debut novel. OK, firstly, let's go back a couple of years. You're from New York, but you actually studied at Oxford. Yes, I spent six years doing my master's and PhD at Oxford, and I focused on detective fiction, which is a genre that has fascinated and really obsessed me since I was a kid. I grew up reading Agatha Christie and Sherlock Holmes, as many young people do. And then I graduated when I was a teenager to Patricia Highsmith, who wrote The Talented Mr. Ripley and Strangers on a Train. And what thrilled and disturbed me in equal measure and continues to thrill and disturb me in equal measure about Highsmith is how she subverts the mores of detective fiction. Since its inception in the 19th century, detective fiction has been a form of moral education. We know at the beginning of a Sherlock Holmes story or an Agatha Christie novel or a Lee Child thriller that by the end, the guilty will be punished or prosecuted, the virtuous rewarded or redeemed, and order and justice upheld and restored, but not so in Highsmith. She persuades us through some dark alchemy to root for a serial killer, Tom Ripley. And as someone who is constitutionally law-abiding, I found that, as I said, both fascinating and disturbing. So when I was a graduate student at Oxford, I elected to study her work. I think I was the first, well, I know I was the first student in the university's history to make 
crime fiction the subject of his PhD. And then I launched a career publishing principally crime and thriller fiction. And have you gone back and read that PhD at any point? I will never do that, Rita. <laughs> we'll need to dig that out oof, and, oof. and have a look. And did you want to write at that point yourself? Never. I did not harbour ambitions to write, although many in publishing do. It did fleetingly cross my mind that I might try it, but there were two considerations holding me back. The first and the more minor one was that I saw firsthand how miserable so many authors are. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) And besides, I liked my day job just fine. But the second consideration, and this is an important one, I think, to stress and underline, is that I did not have a story. And over the course of my 20, 20, I just Mm -hmm. 10 years. I promise it's 10. (laughs) Are you sure? I'm only 38. (laughs) Over the course of my decade in publishing, I learned to spot it when an author submitted a copycat novel. For example, after Fifty Shades of Grey was published and became a juggernaut, I was flooded with submissions, erotic thrillers all. And I thought to myself while sleeping through them and cringing usually, you didn't actually want to write this. You're just cashing in. It's a smash and grab. So did you find that a lot of authors do jump on a zeitgeist like that? All the time. Yes. Copycat novels. And there's nothing I don't think automatically disqualifying about that. Certainly I published a lot. It wasn't what I wanted to put my name on. And ironically, I put another name on my book. So when Gone Girl was published, I perked up for a very long time, probably since at latest 1988, when The Silence of the Lambs was published, the market had been dominated by serial killer thrillers by the likes of James Patterson and Patricia Cornwell. And I enjoy those from time to time, but I didn't have one in me. Then Gone Girl came along and inducted this mass readership into the genre we now call psychological suspense. Here's the thing, Brita. Psychological suspense was a genre pioneered by Patricia Highsmith, the subject of my PhD thesis back in the 50s. And so I thought, okay, this this genre that I love and have studied and like to read is now in vogue. Man, I wish I had a story, but I didn't. But did you not feel then you were jumping on the copycat bandwagon? That's exactly what I was afraid of. That's what I did not want to do. So I said to myself, if I don't have a story, I'm not going to try it. I'm not going to phone it in or cash in. Years went by. And what about your writing ability? Did you feel that if you ever did it, that you would be able to write? So here's, here's what held me back in addition to those previous considerations. I thought, and it turned out I was wrong about this, that the writing would come quite readily because as a graduate student, I'd written a lot. As a publisher, I'd written plenty of copy. I had not told a story before. I had not taken creative writing courses. So I anticipated wrongly, as it turned out, that the storytelling would prove challenging. At this point, of course, I didn't know that. So I held off. The Girl on the Train some years later was published. It too attained juggernaut status. Again, I thought, I wish I had a story to share. Again, I thought, I don't. And it wasn't until almost a year later that a story took root and took shape in my mind. And did you not sit down at any point and try and come up with a story or a plot? I didn't feel like forcing it. Also, and I tossed this point aside earlier, but it's worth revisiting, I did very much like my job. And I left my job quite reluctantly over a year after my book was acquired, in part because my writing career is more remunerative, in larger part because I simply couldn't juggle the responsibilities of a day job with my writing career, exactly, and the publicity of my books. I miss the authors with whom I work, for the most part. (laughs) And I miss the structure and rhythms of office life, but here's where I am. Also, throughout the course of my decade, not 20 years, in publishing, I had routinely seen books acquired at great expense, as mine was, amid much fanfare, as mine was, only to flop. And even though we're only halfway through the year, I could name six, eight, even ten books that have met that exact fate. 
So I did not want to find myself without a writing career and without a day job. So when you came up with this idea, so what sparked the idea then for the book? A pair of circumstances. The first is that about six weeks before I started writing the book in the summer of 2015, I found myself in the office of a Russian psychiatrist, as one does. As you do. Yep, yep. It's a quaint New York custom. And I'd consulted (laughs) him because for years I had struggled with very severe depression for about 15 years. And during that time, I resorted to every medication and meditation technique available, including electroconvulsive therapy and ketamine therapy both of which proved sort of minimally effective. And so I consulted a new shrink, and after grilling me and listening to me for an hour and a half, he said, look, I don't think you've got depression, I think you've got bipolar disorder. And I pointed out that I had seen Homeland, and I did not recognize (laughs) myself in, in Claire Dane's character. And he corrected me. He said, no, you've got a form of bipolar called bipolar 2, wherein the highs are not as dizzying, not as manic, but the lows are lower and more enduring. So he put me on some new meds, and within six weeks, I felt altogether restored. Really? And it took 15 years to get that diagnosis. Here's the horrible thing, Brita. 15 years is about the average for bipolar 2. Really? Because the symptoms are so comorbid, as they say in clinical speak, with those of classic depression. If you're feeling low, there's generally not a reason for anyone to assume it's bipolar 2, which is rarer than classic depression, which itself is far too prevalent. So yeah, 15 years. And I do look back and I think, ugh, I struggled for 15 years. I wallowed in misery for that long. I wish the diagnosis had been corrected and adjusted earlier. It wasn't. And all I can do is march ahead. Um, And at least at this point, you have that diagnosis and you can, you know, control it. Exactly. That's exactly right. And it's been a game changer, a life changer. In any event, about five, six weeks after the diagnosis was corrected, I was parked on my sofa one night in New York. And in my vision, I clocked a light across the street. And I was watching Rear Window at the time, so... I decided very appropriate. uh, Yes, yep. (laughs) So I decided to spy on my neighbor. And this was a lady whom I didn't know, whom I still don't know. She was in her bathrobe, standing beside a lamp and aiming a remote at her TV. And behind me on my own TV, I heard Thelma Ritter in the movie chiding Jimmy Stewart for peering into Raymond Burr's apartment. Wow. She said, don't do that, effectively. I can smell trouble right here in this apartment. You look out, you see something you shouldn't trouble. And when I turned back to the screen, she seemed to be glaring at me. And I thought, how interesting, how uncanny, really. That... Perfect timing. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. 60 years on, I'm spying on my neighbours exactly as he did his. And just like that, this character, who looked a lot like the lady across the street in her robe, watching her TV, fairly lonely on an August evening, strode into my brain, lugging her story behind her. I said I didn't and don't know that lady. I owe her royalties. I was going to say, if she only knew. If she only knew. I know, she would. She might be suing you now to try and find out. (laughs) And so it is a psychological thriller. So your protagonist is a woman called Anna Fox and Mm -hmm. she is in her house. She she doesn't leave her house at all. Um, And it was just quite an interesting story because she basically uh, is trying to deal with a number of traumatic incidences that have, have happened in her life and she just doesn't want to go anywhere. So so agoraphobia seemed to me an appealing device for two reasons. In the first place, most readers happily will not have first-hand experience with depression or trauma. And I should stress, this is not a treatise on those phenomena. This is a thriller first and foremost, but it does engage serious themes. And I think that's the reason why it's connected with millions of readers around the world. In any event, most readers, as I said, will not have first-hand experience of that, so it might be tough for them to relate to such a character, but they can probably more readily imagine what it's like to be stuck inside one's house. So that's a point of access, a point of entry for the reader. And the second consideration was I wanted to challenge myself. 
in Rear Window, Jimmy Stewart is laid up with a broken leg, which, much as I love that film, does not strike me as a particularly compelling handicap because a broken leg will heal. A broken mind might not. Mm. Exactly. And I found, I suppose when I was reading it, the setting, as I said, is very static and it was fantastic to get an insight into her mind and what was going on. But I was afraid that the narrative might feel quite claustrophobic Mm. because she doesn't go anywhere. Uh, Now, luckily, she lives in quite a big house, so she was able to ramble around quite a bit. (laughs) Um, But why one setting? Hitchcock, to whom this book is something of an homage, routinely set stories in single settings in Lifeboat, in Dial in for Murder, in Rope, in Rear Window. And his peers, who directed film noir, and I do draw a distinction between Hitchcock and film noir, although they share some DNA, did the same. They were always dispatching their characters down back alleys. They were always taking shelter in bars, creating these little prisons for themselves. I thought it would be a fun and interesting challenge to set to myself to stage most of the action in a single place. I hadn't seen that in too many novels. You've seen it in films. You've seen it in theatre but not on the page. And now I know why. It is really difficult. I'm not surprised. It demands quite a lot of narrative ingenuity. And as I was saying the other day, you don't want it to devolve into a French bedroom farce with doors opening and slamming. So the challenge was to keep events in play whilst respecting the interiority of the story. It was tough. I'm not going to do it again. Is that why you made the house so big? Yes, that is exactly (laughs) why. You're completely correct. I figured if the reader is going to spend a lot of time locked up with this character, I might as well make the real estate sort of appealing. And I should note that in my second book, much of the action takes place in Pacific Heights in San Francisco in this grand mansion. I think I've got a fetish for real estate. I think you do. I think I do. Especially very grand. Very grand. I've got ambitions for myself. (laughs) Exactly. Well, we'll go visit. Don't worry. (laughs) We can take inside books on tour. (laughs) And you also write as a, you know, from a female perspective and quite successfully, I have to say, as a a female reader. So how did you get inside the mind of a woman? Did you have, do do you have good female role models maybe in your life? I do. So I've got a couple of responses to this. The first, quite patly, is that although I don't know how a woman thinks, I don't know how other men think. I know how I think. And I like to assume that readers are engaging with this character, not because she's a woman, but because she's a credible, convincing person. I hope that's the case. So often in this genre, the female characters, even and especially those in leading roles, are really passive or reactive. They predicate their emotional welfare on men. And this is not like most women I know. Most women I know can outwit the men in their lives, can manage them effectively. I think this is one of the reasons why Amy Dunn of Gone Girl mm-hmm. and Lisbeth Salander of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo made such an impact worldwide. Women recognized their strength and identified with it. My mother is a force of nature. Both of my sisters are. My mother's sisters are. My female friends are competent and intelligent and self-assured. I wanted to create a female character who, despite being a mess, a mess she owns, is not a damsel in distress. Over the course of this novel, Anna Fox identifies an inquiry, pursues an investigation, confronts an antagonist, all without the help of a man, or indeed without the help of anyone. She is persistent. She is, I hope, credible. She is intelligent, just like a real woman. And as you say, reflective of of the women that you know. I I feel, and, and women more broadly, I would think. Yes, absolutely. So in terms of the book then, did you... Plot it intricately? Like, are you a planner or did you just sit down and go with the flow? Mm. I am very much a planner. A lot of authors like to talk about how their characters surprise them. 
if my character surprised me, it means my medication isn't working. I do not wish to be surprised. So I prepared a 7,500 word outline before writing the book. And I did have an inside track in that having worked in the industry, I knew a lot of agents. So I reached out to an agent friend of mine and said, look, just between us, I'm thinking of writing this book because the plot came together to my surprise, very quickly. Would you take a look at this outline, this 7,500 word outline, and let me know if I should pursue it? So she did and encouraged me. I spent the next year writing it and the finished book, Rita Hughes, very closely to that outline. And then my agent submitted it to publishers and we were off to the races. For the second book, I have prepared an exceptionally detailed outline. The Woman in the Window is 90,000 words long, which is about average for a novel. The outline for the second book is 23,000 words. So that's a very long short story it's or a shortish novella. It's, it's just add words, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Say no more. Um, and you were working in the literary industry. So I, I was going to ask you, did you ask for much help? You know, you had help at your fingertips. So did you or did you just cosset yourself away and just type? The latter. I was deathly afraid of being found out as an aspiring writer. Why? Because I loved most of the authors with whom I worked. I'll tell you whom I didn't love after the, after the <laughs> podcast. Off the record. I've got some stories. And I thought to myself, if I were in their shoes, would I want to hear that my editor was working on his own book? I would question my place in his priority totem pole. I didn't want that to happen. Also, I didn't think it would reflect particularly well on me as a member of the publishing community if, in fact, my book was not accepted by publishers. And hand to heart, this is not false modesty, I didn't think it would be. Simply because, at its dark heart, this is a psychological thriller, and as you know, there are a lot of them in the market, some better than others. I didn't have overmuch faith in mine. I've been very pleasantly surprised by the critical reaction, and of course the the reaction from readers. So I didn't want to put myself on the line like that. The book was spit-polished within an inch of its life. In writing it, I would toggle between editor mode and writer mode. So it was quite clean when it came in and didn't require much editing. The next one's going to be a damn mess. <laughs> All right, Just okay. you wait. We're, we're waiting, we're waiting. <laughs> so you wrote it, you got it out there. Um, did you get any rejections then? How did that work? There were some publishers who passed simply because, by that point, the bidding had become quite frenzied. I'll never forget where I was. I was in Newark Airport in New Jersey. It's no more exotic than it sounds, I promise. And my agent rang. I was about to go on holiday. She said, uh, well, great news. We've got an offer. I said, that's fantastic. Who's the offer from? She said, here's a strange thing. It's from an Italian publisher. I told her, oh, I didn't think we'd submit it internationally yet. I thought it was just in the English-speaking world. She said, we didn't, actually. They got their hands on it and read it very quickly. And in my travels, Brita, I've, I've, I've been lucky enough to have journeyed across Europe and indeed around the world in support of this book. I've loved, loved meeting readers of all nationalities. I have learned that certain stereotypes exist for a reason. So my Italian publishers, bless them, are incredibly stylish, very charming, always late. And this has been my experience in publishing. The Italians took their sweet time making decisions. So the fact that they'd read this book overnight and had bid made me think this bodes well. By the time I landed in L.A. six hours later, bids were pouring in from all over the world. That must have been just surreal for a debut novel. It, it was. It, it truly was. I will say... I wasn't totally disembodied simply because as a publisher, I had myself participated in, in big ticket items. So you're used to that. But this is you. This is personal. That's absolutely true. And I should skip ahead and say that I've never been party to 
a publication on this scale. So that has been truly stunning and shocking for me. I remember my agent got got very agent-like and said to interested publishers, look, if you want to compete for this book, you've got to bid a minimum of a million dollars. This was in America. And eight publishers stepped up to bat. Several of them said that's too rich for our blood. Suckers. <laughs> Look what they missed. Would have paid off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But what did you do? Did you just go with the highest bid? How do you decide? No, I didn't. And what I'm going to say will sound incredible, but uh, the bids went up and up and up and gradually bidders fell away. And at a certain point, it was the point at which there were two houses bidding. I said to my agent, I want to pull the plug now. And she said, well, we can probably get them to go up another hundred, couple Why hundred did you thousand want to dollars. Because as a publisher, I knew that at a certain point, beyond a certain threshold, you get buyer's remorse. You instantly feel, oof, I've overpaid. And that tends to breed a bit of resentment. Moreover, if the book doesn't work, everyone in the industry knows you were vastly overpaid. There goes your career. You are not going to make anywhere near the same amount of money for the next book. I thought to myself... Let's cap it here. It's plenty of money. I don't need more. And so I chose the publisher who was actually what we call the underbidder. It was not the richest offer, but I felt this publisher would do a better job. And by chance, that publisher was my own employer. Really? Yep. Well, there's serendipity. It it worked out perfectly. I knew how the sausages were made there. (laughs) I knew what happened behind the scenes. Who makes the tea? That's exactly correct. And so I went with them and very much to their credit, not only have they done a bang up job, but not once, not once did anyone come down to my office in the 15 months during which I worked there after the acquisition and knock on my door and ask to speak to AJ Finn. They were total pros. And what sort of a deal did you do then? Was it not monetarily wise, but Mm -hmm. just book wise? Two books, three books? Two books, yes. So... In the English-speaking world, two-book deals for debut novelists are quite common. Elsewhere in the world, they are not, which makes perfect sense. You don't know how the book is going to perform in the market. I completely get that. In this case, it was a two-book deal. And looking back, just to talk shop and be gauche, it's not lost on me that I could have made a lot more money for the second book had we held off. But we chose stability. I don't regret that. And were you nervous then, given this high-octane bid that went on around your book, how it would be received by the reader? Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, luckily, it's been fantastic. Um, and it's in, I think, 43 countries 43, all over the world, right. which yep. is unbelievable. But if it hadn't? So over the course of my career, as I said, I'd seen books acquired expensively and excitedly only to flop. I didn't want that to happen to me. I feared it might, simply because publishers get it wrong. Look at those books they got excited about that did nothing. I thought that fate could easily befall me. There were indications in the run-up to the publication that things would go well. The book was selected for a number of library and industry panels. We enjoyed great blurbs from Stephen King and Gillian Flynn and others. The movie rights went. So I did think to myself, there must be something about this book. To this day, I do not know what. There must be something about it that intrigues people or excites them. And I felt sufficiently confident that three months before the book's publication, I recognized I couldn't juggle my responsibilities and resigned. I actually stuck around for a while and only left four days before the book was published. Now they had to kick you out. They, they, saying, they, on, they, Dan, there are claw marks on the wall. It's <laughs> pathetic. Exactly. So not only was the book a roaring success, you have sold the film rights. We did. Uh, we did, as mentioned, sell the film rights. Actually, no, we didn't mention this. Excuse me. I just did AMTV and I'm getting my... Your date's mixed up. That's I'm absolutely getting my fine. dates mixed up. No, well, we, we did mention Julianne Moore earlier yes. on. That's what we mentioned. So she is going to be in it. What part is she playing? She plays the maybe murder victim. And I should say that 
throughout much of the book, you don't know if this character, Anna Fox, actually witnessed anything at all. She comes to doubt herself. We're not sure if the danger is real or imagined. So Julianne Moore, who is, as you know, a redhead, but will be dyeing her hair blonde, uh, sorry, brown for this project because Amy Adams is also a redhead and you, you can't have can't two. Can't have the two of them. There's a quota. Uh, she will play the maybe murder victim. Amy Adams, a five-time Oscar nominee, will play the lead. Amy Adams is one of my favorite actresses. She was the only actress I wanted for this part and very much to the studio's credit after asking me whom I envisioned and after hearing me say Amy Adams, they went after her until they got her. It's a shame that five-time Oscar nominee Amy Adams has made one bad film, and that film is set in Ireland. It is. Yes, so you know the one we I'm do. talking about, Leap Year. It's called Leap Year. Yep. And it's, <laughs> it's not that it's bad. It's not that bad, but... It's just a bit of Irish schlick, you it's, know? But it's Blarney, as yeah. you say, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. Did you watch You've watched it? Uh, yeah. Mm, yes. Yes, yeah, some I, of it. I quite fancy Matthew Good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what's not to fancy? We all do. But, uh, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'll fight you for him. But uh, he's an Englishman, I believe. He is, yeah. exactly. Yeah, we were only talking about this, and uh, yeah, he is. And it's a number of years since that movie came out. Um, but that's what people here would, would recognise her from. So, I mean, it'll be great to see her on the screen now in this particular role. I agree. And the other one, you have new news. I do have new news. Uh, it's Gary Oldman. Wow. Gary Oldman, recently minted Oscar winner, whose Oscar win for Darkest Hour was directed by Joe Wright, who's directing The Woman in the Window, will be playing the role of the father next door. I am pinching myself. It's a stellar lineup. It's it really incredible, is. isn't it? And here's the thing about Gary and Julianne's role. Uh, Gary and Julianne. Uh, they're your, the, they're you your best friends. G-Dog and J-Slice. <laughs> they, their roles are splashy, but not especially large. They are, they are meaty supporting roles. They are not leads. And these actors are usually playing leads. So I'm that much more grateful to them for lending their extraordinary talents to this And have, ha- have you had feedback from them as to why they wanted to get involved? Not yet. But when I meet them, I plan on stammering. And then, and then asking them. Spluttering. Spluttering. I'll be very dignified. So do you have any input into the movie? Not particularly beyond urging them to cast Amy Adams. I was also very insistent uh, that I did not want an actress who was 30 years old. One of the important qualities or characteristics of this character is that she is 39, 40. And although she's still a, a young woman, she's not a spring chicken. Her whole life is not ahead of her. She has sustained some sort of loss, and we don't learn the details of that loss until about two-thirds of the way through the book. She's estranged from her family, I can say that much. I I felt it would be much more poignant for a woman of 40 years of age, entering middle age, to have sustained such a loss, as opposed to someone who is 25. Also, the ageism of Hollywood absolutely revolts me. Totally. It's it's epidemic, and I, I did not want the very talented Margot Robbie, now that she volunteered, to play this part. She's got lots of parts she can play. You wanted a realistic portrayal. I did, Like real life. Exactly. So your next book. Ah, yes. What's it about? This is a story about a young woman, an aspiring crime writer, who has struck up a correspondence with an older crime writer, very established, quite celebrated. Just looking for mentorship or? She sends him a fan letter and he responds. This is all via post, not via email. Do you get fan letters? I have gotten fan letters. I got one at a signing last night. Really? It was great, yes. Have you read it? I did. It was was very complimentary. I enjoy receiving fan mail. I will say, the subject of about 40% of my fan mail is the cat in the book. There is a cat, (laughs) and at one point the cat sustains an injury, and spoiler alert, I... Don't actually tie up that loose end. I, I'm not a huge cat person, are you? No. Okay, I, I don't really like them. They don't like me. No. 
uh, they don't like anyone. <laughs> so I just sort of forgot about the cat. 40% of my fan mail asks me what happened to the what cat. What happened to the cat? So really? I might need to write a sequel just to wrap that up. You might need to bring the cat into the second novel. <laughs> <laughs> he could travel. The second book is set in California, in San Francisco. So this young woman travels out there and prepares to write the guy's biography because he's dying. And she knows that he's a celebrated crime novelist, but he's most famous for the disappearance, the sensational disappearance 20 years earlier of his first wife and teenage son. Nothing's been heard of them since. And as she pokes around at his past, she starts to suspect mm. that someone in his inner circle knows much more than yeah. what they've said. Interesting. Yeah. So when will that be on shelves? I'm hoping that will be... I'm hoping that will be number one everywhere in uh, in early 2020. That's the plan. It must be hard, though, to find time to write at the moment. You are on a worldwide tour at the minute. Brita, it is awesomely difficult. I... I like to think I'm a fairly, I don't have much going for me, but I'm quite disciplined. That said, it is tough to write, man, when you are on the road. It's not natural to me. I'm knackered after a long day's promotion. And there's no routine. There's no routine. And you're absolutely right. That is the hardest part. I am a creature of habit. I like being able to sit down at my desk every morning, work a certain number of hours, swim, work again. Can't do that on the road. And seeing as you're on the road then quite a bit, are you reading a lot? I do. I read voraciously. I particularly like to read, whilst I'm writing, books that I wish I had written. So don't there's we a, all. Yeah, don't we? <laughs> right? There's an Irish-American author of whom I'm particularly fond called Tana French. And I don't think she's particularly well-known here. She's hugely celebrated in the States. She writes a sort of literary crime novel. And that's what I want to write. Books with more in their heads and in their hearts than your average crime Is that our own Tana French who has written a number of crime books? She she has been based in Ireland for quite a while. One and the same, yes. Yeah, and she's a huge uh, award winner as well. Absolutely, we have read a number of her novels. She's fantastic. Amazing. I wish I could write like her. And on that, I mean, have you read much other Irish fiction, crime or otherwise? I love John Boyne. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I love the older the older writers. I mean, who doesn't love... Well, actually, plenty of people don't love James Joyce. I happen to love James Joyce. <laughs> Most people just haven't been able to get past about three pages of James Joyce. I don't think Joyce. they've actually read him. <laughs> Alex Barkley is a crime writer whose work I really enjoy. Yes, I am particularly fond of Irish literature. And we've a wonderful, I have to say, well, the crime writers in the country, a lot of them are female, uh, which yep. is which is quite interesting. And we've interviewed a number of them actually on uh, on Inside Books as well. As are most of my favourite crime writers, I should say. Female. Most of them are female. And I have a theory. I think this is because, inarguably, women have to put up with a hell of a lot more shit than men do. This is not up On a day-to-day basis, on just On a day-to-day or? basis. And I, I think this is why they're able to access feelings of unease and even fear more readily than men can. Mm, interesting insight. That, that, that's that's my theory. I will ask the next female crime author that we have Please and see, see if she, she agrees with you. So just finally, I suppose, given the fact you've just been through the debut novel process, now I have to say probably quite an extraordinary one, mm-hmm. um, what advice do you have for anybody listening who's at the kitchen table trying to get the first book done? I've got three pieces of advice. I've got these locked and loaded. We want to hear them. So the first piece of advice, the first and most important, is that you must read You've got to read. You cannot work in that kind of vacuum. If you don't read and you're trying to write, it's like trying to write a song without listening to music. How would you know where to start? How would you know what it might sound like? You've got to read. You'll be exposed to new techniques, new voices, new tricks. You'll learn what not to do. Read. The second piece of advice is to remember that writing is not always fun. It is a job. Most jobs aren't always fun. Yours seems kind of fun. 
actually. Well, but maybe not around the clock. <laughs> maybe not. No, but a lot of uh, structure has to go into it. A lot of preparation time has to go into it. Yep. I can't sit here and interview you without having done my research. And so. boy, have you. And the third piece of advice is to remember that because it's not fun, because it's not easy, you shouldn't be too hard on yourself. Writing is not... I wouldn't say it's not natural to me, but it requires a lot of work. I know that John Boyne writes every single day. And man, I wish I could do that. It is hard. So don't beat yourself up, especially if you're just starting out. Brilliant. Well, Dan Mallory, thank you for joining us here on Inside Books. And you'll find The Woman in the Window in all bookshops now. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books, I-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production. 